0: Welcome to Follow to Lead,
1: a monthly journey into the world of Catholic education, exploring what it means to follow God in order to lead others to him. I'm Father Randy Sly, your co-host.
2: Thank you, Father Randy. I'm Kyle Petrantonio, and we'd like to begin each program uh, with a prayer. Father, uh, would you kindly lead us?
1: Uh, Thank you, Kyle. Sure, I'd be glad to lead us. Let us pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Christ the teacher, teach us to listen. Teach us to do the deep listening to the sounds of our soul, waiting to hear your voice calling us to cast out deeper, to become fishers of men and women, shepherds of souls, to follow your will in order to lead others to the truth, beauty, and goodness only you can offer. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.
2: Thank you, Father. Really excited to introduce our guest this week. Uh, when we began the podcast Followed to Lead, I knew this person needed to be featured in one of our very first episodes. Uh, today, we have the honor of talking with Dr. Alan Hunt, author, speaker, and now senior advisor with Dynamic Catholic, uh, which was founded by Matthew Kelly. Prior to Alan's entrance into the Catholic Church. He was the pastor of Mount Pisgah United Methodist Church in Alpharetta, Georgia, a congregation of about 8,000 members just outside Atlanta. Uh, Alan, welcome to Follow to Lead. Great to be with you all. Thank you for having me.
1: Well, Alan, uh, we're really glad that you're able to be with us today. And like you, I'm a convert to the Catholic faith. And I know people are always interested in, in finding out the stories of how individuals came into the church, and especially with you coming from such a powerful and successful ministry, what is it that uh, that uh, drew you into the Catholic Church? Could you just share a bit of your story?
0: Yeah,
3: I guess it's sort of the, the short thumbnail sketch, Father. Um, after I graduated from Seminary, Methodist Seminary at Emory in Atlanta, um, I had a couple professors that really wanted me to, to think about going into theological education, and so they helped me get into the graduate program, the PhD program in New Testament and ancient Christian origins up at Yale, and so I moved up there, and there were four of us who were admitted to the program that year, and one was a Jesuit priest, one was a Dominican friar, and then a Presbyterian pastor and myself, and very quickly became uh, close friends with a Dominican uh, who's still uh, my best friend outside of my wife to this day, and To that relationship with Father Stephen, um, got exposed, frankly, to Catholicism in a way I I had had previously had very minimal exposure to Catholicism I grew up in a small town in North Carolina uh, where there was no Catholic presence, um, had been Methodist my entire life. Uh, My father, I mean, my grandfather, my great-grandfather, my great-great-grandfather, my great-great-great-grandfather had all been Methodist pastors. My parents worked at Methodist colleges, so I kind of grew up in that milieu, if you will, and through, through that relationship with Father Stephen, got exposed to Catholicism probably from a different point of view. Um, just because of our friendship, I was able to come to him in different things, and we had different kinds of conversations just from relaxing and talking about our, our uh, coursework. And several of those experiences were, were very, very um, powerful in my life, and I, the, the, the most powerful one really was... Uh, about two years into our friendship, he and I led a Linton retreat for a group of cloister Dominican sisters in North Guilford, Connecticut, uh, at Our Lady of Grace Monastery there. And meeting those 50 women, um, I, I, it's hard, I think, for somebody who's not a convert to get that because um, I think... It, 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 if you grow up Catholic, you, you know about cloister, you, you at least know about religious life and that kind of thing. I honestly, I mean, I'm embarrassed to say I, I should have known, but I, I had no idea that even such a category existed of 50 women who were completely devoted to this life of this contemplative life of prayer and adoration um, and community. And meeting them really opened up an entire new vista for me on the faith and on what it means to be the church, and Father Stephen and I were already having lots of conversations about uh, theology and ecclesiology and those kinds of things, but it was really uh, several of those practical experiences, a, a, an Easter visual mass, this time with the with the, the cloister nuns, all those sort of cumulatively over time planted seeds in me that 15, 18 years later um, really caused me to to reevaluate who I am, what I believe, and who the church is, and so that's kind of a, the condensed version, but it, it, it opened really through friendship. I mean, mm-hmm. it wasn't so much an intellectual journey or um, some kind of divine theophany experience. It really was through friendship and relationship and this fun conversation and fun experiences. Um, Cause I don't think father Stephen would ever suggest that at the beginning, he was trying to help lead me into Catholicism. In fact, when I called it 15 or 18 years later and said, I was, um, going to make this move he was he was fairly uh fairly surprised (laughs) yeah so uh really it's funny how powerful friendship is what what was the
1: tipping point because i know in my own life that there were a lot of things that led me toward that point but then finally there was this one moment where i just knew that i had to make that decision
3: yeah i i guess if i had to, to pinpoint that father um as Kyle mentioned in my intro, and I was pastoring this very large, marvelous group of people in suburban Atlanta doing all kinds of great stuff. I mean, an extraordinary congregation of people. Uh, And every year my wife and I would take a good portion of July off. That was kind of really the only downtime that we had. And we would really get away. And when we were vacation, uh, for three or four years in a row, um, I, I began going to Catholic parishes to go to mass, you know, even though I couldn't receive the Eucharist, um, because I knew no matter where we were on vacation, I knew what I was going to get, as opposed to in in a Protestant setting, uh, so much hinges on what's the music style, what's the pastor style, blah, 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 blah. Uh, With with a Catholic mass, I knew what I was going to get wherever we were. And so for about three or four years in a row, I, I would come back from vacation, really having this overwhelming sense that God was calling me to be Catholic, um, and because I'm a fairly stubborn, sinful, rebellious, um, dirt based vehicle uh, that I am, uh, I was able to very quickly rationalize that and say, yeah, that's really kind of inconvenient. And this is a nice little vacation thing you got going You know, keep, keep plowing. But after about three or four years of that, I, I came back and I called father Stephen. I said, you know, I, this is, I can't, I can't keep ignoring this. Uh, cause I, I I'm feeling this, um, overwhelming tug. And what do you suggest that I do? And he, um, he suggested to me that I, I begin spending time in an adoration chapel at a parish near uh, the congregation that I was the pastor of. So I would go by and I would sit there uh, every, every so often and spend some time there in prayer and just be there. And one day I was there when they actually had daily mass, and it was the Feast of St. Thomas Aquinas. And Monsignor um, Paul Reynolds, who was the pastor at the time, shared uh, Aquinas' I- experience of um, – late in his life, I've forgotten the year now, it's like 1280, 1283, something like that. Um, the experience of being overwhelmed by what happens in the Eucharist that, that you may be familiar with probably, uh, where he's celebrating Mass and is just dumbstruck and realizes, wow, what happens in this moment, um, when I compare everything that I've done all my preaching, teaching, philosophizing, and, and everything, all of my work is but straw compared to what happened right. in the Eucharist. And, and as he shared that, it just kind of washed over me. And, and I, I realized, um, like the fellow in the Gospel of Mark, Lord, I, I do believe, forgive my unbelief.
2: Alan, I'm curious if your conversion uh, to the Catholic faith sparked um, any dialogue uh, or, or subsequent conversions in the large congregation of, of Methodists you were, you were shepherding? It's funny, (laughs) it's funny, Kyle, um, how um,
3: nonlinear things can be. And, you know, here it is this week on Feast of the Epiphany, it'll be 13. That's the day I came into the church uh, in 2008. So it'll be 13 years uh, since I came in. And still having those conversations with people along the way, um, not only with former folks uh, from my my professional life, but also people who were Methodist pastors. That's what surprised me more than, you know, Mm. in in any mega church uh, in America, somewhere between 40 and 60% of the, of the parishioners are ex-Catholics. Right. There's a whole conversation, there's a whole podcast in that one. Um, So (laughs) I I knew there there were a lot of folks who were uh, former Catholics and, and some of their reactions was interesting to me. Um, But what has really surprised me is here still 13 years later, about, two times a year, um, I'll get a phone call, not just from Methodist pastors, but other Methodist pastors in in northern Georgia, where I I serve. I'll get emails throughout the year from pastors around the country, but people that I actually really knew and worked alongside, and say, hey, you know, I've been, could you tell me about those kinds of conversations? And so it's been interesting, uh, so there's sort of this stream of people um, some of whom have come into the church and some of whom are kind of making their way there. And some of whom are just reading it. has been, it's been really fascinating. I didn't, I didn't anticipate that.
1: Mm-hmm. The uh, interesting thing about uh, that type of a dynamic is that uh, you had no idea at the time that others would even have that inclination that you have. And uh, I know I've been surprised by the same thing. Uh, the inquiries that you get from guys that you just really were surprised uh, that were interested in, in uh, exploring it, the Catholic it really,
3: faith. It, 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 what's been fascinating too is it, it's uh, it, I don't know, I guess it's um, I, I don't know what the word to describe it would be. It, it surprised me who some of the people are.
1: Right, exactly.
3: People and, that I didn't um, particularly know well or was close to. Um, some some of the folks I, bar- I barely knew them.
1: It's, right. It's,
3: it's it's just fascinating, you know, and what they uh, remember and what struck them.
1: Exactly. You were talking about Father Stephen, and uh, of course, in Methodism, you have like a, a heritage that goes back generations in your own family. Are there other uh, individuals that had a significant influence in you following your calling first into pastoral ministry, etc.? cetera?
3: Um, yes, Father Randy, I, you know, I, when I went to college, I majored in finance and, and history, and when I got now worked in management consulting for several years, and, and really never, it had never crossed my mind to be in full-time ordained ministry in any way, shape, or form. Um, and so there were, there were a lot of voices and a lot of friendships and a lot of relationships. One Methodist pastor in particular, uh, Reverend Farrell Drummond in Atlanta, who um, was my pastor when I when I got my first job in Atlanta, and, and um, my wife, who I was dating at the time, she and I began going to, to, his, to his congregation. Um, very, very, very significant influence in my life. Again, just through that taking an interest, investing in me, um, loving me and helping me, meeting me where I was and, and, and helping me to grow, not to sort of tell me what I needed to do. But I, I've been really, really fortunate with all. I mean, this is why I think what y'all do is so important with so many excellent teachers um, along the way, all the way back to, to high school and college, graduate school, and even mentors in my management consulting life um, who were uh, gracious, invested in me, shared their faith with me, encouraged me along the way. Um, and you know, so Farrell Drummond and then, you know, in, in seminary at, at Emory, I had who I probably would argue is the, 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 the strongest preaching professor uh, in, in the last hundred years. Dr. Fred Craddock uh, became, oh. became a good friend as well. And yeah. um, he was very, very influential in my life.
2: Ellen, you mentioned growing up in North Carolina. Uh, uh, can you just uh, give us some color in terms of your growing up, uh, your upbringing, your folks, uh, what you were like as a student?
3: Uh, those are those are all different questions, guys. <laughs> you had to throw that last one in. What I was like as a student? Uh, maybe maybe we'll sidestep that one. Uh, but, um, as I mentioned, I, my the, the Methodist Church was a very important part of my family's life and heritage. And so um, my, my dad made the decision early on that he he was not called to be a pastor, but he wanted to serve the church. And so I was actually born in Los Angeles. My dad was out in, um, in L.A. for the Methodist Church, um, starting a Methodist bookstore in Hollywood. Um, and then he worked at the Methodist Publishing House in Nashville um, as an accountant. He, he's a financial guy and then um, became the the business manager of two Methodist colleges, first one Brevard College in Brevard, North Carolina, where I spent most of my childhood, and then Florida Southern College down in Lakeland, uh, the Methodist College in the state of Florida, where I went to high school. And uh, that obviously shaped me and my my love of education, my comfort with education, and the joy of being able to learn and explore and and not get too um, fossilized or reified around a certain thought, but uh, to, I was exposed to lots of different kinds of things. And I've always enjoyed that and, and appreciated people who are willing to have conversations and, and not to sort of be uh, argumentative and throw Twitter bombs at you. Uh, and so I, I enjoyed all that. And, and because of that, you know, I grew up in a family that valued education very much and, and valued faith-based education. Um, and obviously as, uh, as a Methodist, you um, really in generally across all the whole Protestant spectrum k-12 education tends to be um not absent but not particularly present right um so it's a little more hit or miss so you have a lot of preschools and you have an enormous number of colleges but you don't have a whole lot in between you have some but not a lot and so that was one of the things that's fascinating about becoming catholic Um, is that I think that that, particularly as I've studied um, child development and human development and faith development, um, those years between um, preschool, maybe three, and about sixth grade, those are pretty determinative years. Uh, They're not just influential years, they're determinative in many ways. Uh, And that if by the age 12 or 13, you don't have the faith in you, doesn't make it impossible but it makes it very difficult for you to ever acquire that. And in the same way, your moral compass is pretty well formed by the age of twelve, and a lot of people are surprised by that. Uh, and so, that that I think there's a window there that 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 is oftentimes missing. That, that the Catholic Church has the opportunity uh, through Catholic education to to really um, maximize that um, because those years they matter a lot a lot more than I think most people and, and particularly even in education realize uh, that we've got that shot, and by the time they get to middle school, it, it all and it almost it's more a uh, growth and containment strategy as opposed to a, an initiation and formation strategy.
1: Now, in the Methodist tradition, at least my experience has been that you you kind of focus everything on Sunday school. That uh, Sunday school is the place for religious formation, and they kind of have a uh, a separation between uh, religious education in Sunday school, and then you get your uh, formal education. Uh, Grammars, you know, all of those things happen in the public school setting. Do you see that uh, there's a difference in the uh, when when you actually incorporate the two together and you bring them into one place where you're formed in your faith at the same time that other uh, areas are being formed?
0: Yeah,
3: it, it was interesting because... Uh, as you know, in Kyle's intro, I think I think he mentioned that there was. We also had Mount Pisgah Christian School, um, and when when I arrived there as a senior pastor, I think it went through eighth grade, and then we helped to develop the high school on top of that. So it became. Um, I'm a little rusty on this because it's been 13 years, and and I'm sure some things have changed in the world since then. But um, it became this. I think only the second uh, Methodist school in the country that that went um, preschool through 12th grade. Right um, now, there may be there may be a few more now, but I I doubt that there are very many, um, because because you're you're right, Father Randy, that, um. I guess Sunday school and in youth group and those kinds of things is where, is in general, where Methodists invest their energy and figure you're going to get your reading, writing, and arithmetic, uh, in, in the public school system or or at, at a private school of some kind, but it's not probably going to be church related, um. And, and in general, that's that's pretty true of of Baptists um, and and Presbyterians maybe a little less true. You'll find a few more Lutheran schools. Um, but in general, uh, Methodist Church has not invested in that K-12 window at all.
1: Right. I, I thought having your school there at Mount Pisgah was a very unique expression of, of ministry, and yet probably uh, gave you a great um, uh, introduction into the whole community beyond just Methodist folks there, but uh, a real penetration for evangelization.
3: Yeah, and, and my my predecessor started the school and, and did a brilliant job doing that, partly because the, the county had grown so much and public schools had not been able to keep up with it. And he was very disappointed in the education that his own son had gotten, um, and saw saw the school as the opportunity to, uh, to meet people where they are and, and introduce them to the gospel. And I think that's one of the dilemmas, and you two can speak to this way more intelligently than I can from the Catholic perspective, but in the Protestant perspective, it's there is always this tension in education uh, as what is the role of the gospel and the faith in the school? And so you have two or three different approaches to that. You have what would be called more of a covenant school um, where you sign up on the front end and you say, we, we subscribe to these beliefs. Um, the school going to enforce these beliefs. Anybody doesn't hold these beliefs doesn't need to come to school. It's, it's kind of a sort of a fortress mentality uh that we're on the inside here it's safe and our kids are going to be nurtured and educated in that and that's where a lot of Protestant schools are and then you have you have a handful that are are more sort of nominally they're they're, they're named christian school but really they're just really excellent um, academic schools that kind of have the maybe a little veneer and what we were trying to do is we were trying to be a mission school and that was hard to do it was to, it was to say that th- this is a school where you are welcome um, regardless of, of your faith background and how you approach the faith, understand this is who we are, how we're going to approach it. Um, but we were trying to kind of meet people along the spectrum of faith and lead them, lead them deeper, not having kind of the fortress mentality where there's you know a lot of clarity and everybody's got to subscribe and adhere to this, but it was uh, much like our sports ministry was much like our crisis pregnancy center was much like our counseling center was. It was an opportunity to meet and scratch where people were itching um, and in doing so, again, back to that friendship idea, develop friendships and relationships where you can actually have conversations, not just sort of be speaking at people, but talking with people. And also yeah. earn the credibility of why why, why are you investing this kind of energy? Well, it's because we love you. We think you, you, you're made in the image of God. Your life matters. Um, and God has great hopes and dreams for your potential, and we want to help you fulfill that. Um, but that's a much harder um, pool to swim in. Because you, you, ha- you you're getting pressures and stresses from different kinds of people wanting you to have less of the faith, or you, know, you don't you don't you don't throw out this family because they do X or that kind of stuff. But we we were really committed. And again, I, I'm out of the loop now. Here, 13 years later, I can't speak for kind of where, where things have gone, to be honest. But that's what we were trying to do. Um, yeah, and, and I was very passionate about that. Really was. I, I didn't really have a need to to create. Uh, a school for people who were ardently passionately already in agreement with everything that I (laughs) believe just to kind of be able to have intramural conversation.
2: Alan, you enter the Catholic church. Um, how soon thereafter did you get involved with dynamic Catholic? Can you share a little bit about that path and journey and, and what dynamic Catholic does, uh, for our church?
3: Yeah, thanks Kyle. I, uh, when I came into the church, um, I, I had father Randy and I have a lot of similarities and that we both have a lot of background in the, the Wesleyan method, West, Wesleyan Methodist stream of Protestantism. We both worked in radio. Um, and when, when I came into the church, I was initially doing a, a talk radio show on mainstream radio across the country, uh, not on Catholic radio or Christian radio, but on main news talk stations, um, talking about life, from a faith perspective and and issues in the news related to, you know, how as a, as a Christian, um, and now as particularly a Catholic Christian, how it, and then interacting with callers on that. And again, it was very much uh, the reason I wasn't on Catholic radio or Christian radio was very much the same point that that Father Randy was making about the school is that I wanted to be like St. Paul out in in the marketplace, in the Areopagus in, in the book of Acts, having conversations with different kinds of people representing the faith, interacting, learning from them, then learning from me, and hopefully planting seeds and bringing people along. So I I had a big variety of kinds of people who were calling and interacting with the show. And I guess a year or two after um, I had come into the church, uh, it's a longer story that we won't go into today, but uh, Matthew Kelly and Pat Lincioni and I uh, were speaking together and, and I had met Pat through one email when he he heard about my conversion and reached out one to me. And I I, had never heard of Matthew and, and he hadn't heard of me. And so the three of us were together for the first time um and just had a really good conversation and and the three of us started doing some different things together and speaking but matthew and i became very close friends in that and in doing that i, I came to realize that um you know, matt that there, there aren't a lot of catholic evangelists uh, and that frankly kind of surprised me a little bit coming from my background i thought there would be more uh, of folks trying to do that kind of work. And I realized that Matthew and I had a kindred spirit and and a kindred um, vision for our ministry. And so he invited me to to come kind of help him um, leverage this tremendous platform that he had built of uh, hundreds of thousands or millions, really, I guess, of people across the country over 20 years of traveling around and speaking and try to leverage that resource to do just that, to, to meet people where they are um, not just to, to feed the people who are already hardcore ardent, passionate Catholics, but to meet people who are um, further away from that center of the church and maybe even have fallen away from the church to try to spark their faith or ignite their faith. And so um, that's, that's what we do. And, and we try to uh, meet people where they are spark spark a faith conversation, help them to take the next step forward. If they're step one, get them in step two, if they're at step seven, get them to step eight, but not try to get people from zero to 10. Um, and, really try to to lead people into engagement, from disengagement with the church to engagement in the church.
1: I know, uh, Ellen, that there's uh, the dynamic parish uh, thing that Dynamic Catholic is doing now, kind of revitalizing parishes uh, in terms of of their faith and life. Does that have a a Catholic school component to it or a way of reaching to the parish school uh, that may be connected to the parish?
3: Yeah, that... The, the school relationship varies because some of the, you know, the, we're in the pilot phase of dynamic parish, and so we, we started with an initial 60 parishes across um, 12 dioceses, so five parishes per diocese, um, and we're continually kind of learning and iterating off of that model, trying to find a solution, a scalable solution, and a simple solution to help begin to re-energize a parish, uh, whether they're large, small, urban, rural, um, ethnic, or, or or what, socioeconomically. And so the the school, we, we kind of work with them individually on that rather than just kind of a, here, here's the one path. Because as you know, I, I guess the two things that, that interest us most about the school, and it's not going to surprise either of the two of you. One is what we just talked about, that the, uh, that the future of the church in many ways rides on that uh, five-year-old to 12-year-old window. Um, right. If we don't help a, a large portion of those kids. Um, get the Catholic faith, have their hearts warmed, if you will, Father Randy, by the Catholic faith, um, and embracing that faith and having their moral compass found, it, our, our work uh, is going to be enormously difficult if we don't get around to that until middle school or high school. Uh, and then the second, the second thing is, and this is the one that surprised me, but I don't think it'll surprise you, was that as we did research in parishes, and we were really trying to study, how do people feel, how do they get a sense of belonging? How do they get a sense of Family, a sense of home, a sense of fellowship in their parish, um, and what we found is that the vast majority of that happens through the school. Um, that the people who feel most attached to the, I mean, most attached to the parish, and who feel most like their parish is their family, that it feels like home, most of them have that because of their relationship in the school. So that that puts a, an incredible opportunity, a, a mission opportunity um, for a parish in the school, as opposed to the school being this thing over here. And yeah, maybe there's some financial relationship and maybe we, you know, we do a, a a benefit dinner or something, but to understand, first of all, your greatest mission field is these kids. This is going to determine the vitality of of your parish over the long haul and of the faith in America over the long haul. And secondly, this is going to make a enormous qualitative difference in the connect connectivity and the, in the, in the social web, the, the social thickness of fellowship uh, in, in your parish life. So don't see this as something over there. See this as, as like that. Um, and to us, that's what we're trying to figure out as ways to help make that happen. So we maximize the mission opportunity with the kids, and we maximize the, the koinonia, the fellowship community uh, experience for the, for the parish as a whole.
2: Ellen, with, with all your years in, in ministry uh, now, I'm guessing there's no doubt in your mind that these past several months have been among the most unique and, and likely most challenging <laughs> uh, in regards to ministering uh, to folks uh, from issues of, of racial tension to the global pandemic uh, to a hotly contested national election. Uh, can you comment just on how um, these past several months have been uh, for you personally, but also in your profession and in, in terms of how you're ministering uh, in in the various ways you do?
0: Yeah,
3: it 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 has been a fascinating year um, in all kinds of ways, and I think um, personally, I my my wife and I, um, everybody in the in the country has suffered. Um, I think probably on the spectrum, my wife and I are on the, we, we've, we've suffered a little, but not a lot, as a lot of people have. Uh, we've had some painful experiences with the death of a close uh, friend who's a priest, uh, Father Jorge in, in Brooklyn, New York, who's only 48 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and the isolation of, uh, of my mother and not being able to, to physically see her or touch her other than to wave at her as she steps out on the balcony of her apartment and we stand down below um, and that kind of thing. Yeah, compared to what a lot of people have been through, ours has been probably on the more modest perspective of it, but it has, I think what it has attu- has attuned me to is, is two things, and one is um, the incredible isolation that so many people uh, in, in our culture experience on a day-to-day basis, and this has been um, like fertilizer on top of that. Um, people who had only a handful of uh, interpersonal relationships to begin with and now um, really almost de facto have none um, because of all the different things that, that have taken place and the, the strain and the stress of what that looks like to you mentally, um, psychologically, intellectually, um, and even physically. I can see it in so many people. Um, and you can see it in people's eyes when you when you walk through uh, Walmart. You can see it uh, in their faces when you stare through the window into a nursing home or to a hospital. Um, just the, the the strain and the wear and the anxiety that has induced and how long it's going to take to live out of that. Because uh, this is not going to be something where everybody gets vaccinated and then we flip the switch and, hey, we go back to normal. Right. There's going to be a long runway here. There's going to be a long lag time in terms of people's being able to To feel comfortable and to feel confident again there's inertia has set in in so many ways in our lives and uh, your your physics teacher at your school will tell you an an object at rest tends to stay at rest uh, unless there's something and so something that's going to going to move that which leads into the second point kyle and that is um i think in terms of ministry and I, i don't know that i can speak to this as well um as the two of you can from from my vantage point but the how this has provided an accelerant and in some ways that's good and in some ways it's bad um for where the church is headed and for the relationship and dependency on technology that that we are going to have and need to have um the first part of that is where the church is headed i think again inertia is going to change people's mass attending habits over the long haul um and what and their propensity and desire to 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 be out once you've broken that habit for 12 months and, and it may well be 18 24 months in, in some of the places in California New York Boston etc it's hard it's hard to pick that habit back up um, in, in, in the same kind of way and second of all what we saw at dynamic Catholic you know people tend to think of Matthew and me as, as itinerant speakers we travel around we speak in you know, 25 50 parishes a year but really that's a pretty small part of what we do to be honest that's that's a way to kind of be out with people and be learning from them and engaging and in, and in, in, being in real life but a lot of what we do is creating books and online resources and what we saw almost immediately was this very fast migration uh, to i mean in the tens of thousands percent uh, of growth exponentially of our resources of decision point our confirmation program and blessed our first communion program online not only because they're free but because they're online and parishes could use those in different kinds of ways to, to be implementing and that's good and it's bad uh, because it, it, just as my conversion was primarily friendship, um, in, in Christianity is fundamentally relational. Right. Uh, and so right. it's not just informational, it, it's also relational. There's an informational component, but a, 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 a strong part of Catholic education, I would argue, and you guys can push back and say, Alan, you're, you're full of hooey, uh, it, it is not so much the, the physics or even the, the religious studies class that you're teaching at, at St. Michael's or at Holy Spirit Prep. It's in those relationships and friendships and the in the casual conversations that just sort of germinate and percolate and ruminate over time and, and create sort of this organic um, setting where exploration occurs and discovery occurs. And that's very hard to do in virtual settings. Uh, that's and so it's true. It's not just true in Catholic. Yeah, it's not just true in Catholic schools, it's true in Catholic parishes as well. Um, and so there's a reductionism that has occurred. Um And I don't think any of us know what that's going to look like over the next five, 10 years. Um, Obviously there's going to be more of that because people are used to streaming stuff and that kind of thing, but how all those different factors intersect is going to be fascinating to watch.
1: Yeah. We have a house system at our high school and we, we can't do house system things anymore. I mean, the kids can't interact that way. And so even in doing retreats, they're kind of in their seat, socially distanced, watching a screen or listening to somebody, and so that sense of interaction is really gone.
3: Yeah, and, and I, I don't know how Mass is in Kansas City um, right now, Father Randy, but uh, w- where I am in Atlanta, there are some parishes that still haven't reopened at all. Uh, my, my parish uh, in, in South Atlanta, uh, we have Mass, but We have, I think it's 25-30% capacity, so you're spread out, half the pews are are taped off. Everybody wears a mask. We don't recite the creed or the Our Father. We don't sing. Um, So it's a very minimalist approach from the, uh, this probably is not a word, but the robustitude, if you will, uh, of what mass and and parish life looks like. And so, you know, our our staff team is doing an excellent job navigating the, the best possible scenario, but it's still a much diminished experience mm-hmm. um, because of, because of what we're able to offer. And yeah. You know, so the good news is I can go receive the Eucharist um, and, and I can hear a homily. And that's, I mean, again, that's, that's, so mass is no longer an hour. It's about 30, 35 minutes. And you don't really speak to anybody. It's, it, it's, it's a fascinating, fascinating experience. And I know some of my brothers and sisters in, in Orange County and in, in Brooklyn and places like that can't even do that. Um, it's, right. what that long-term impact is going to be is going to be fascinating to watch.
1: Now, one of the things that you do, I'm an ambassador for Dynamic Catholics, so you come and visit me periodically as a coach uh, through your, your videos. And uh, putting on your coaching hat, what, what uh, information or what would you like to say to, say, Catholic teachers right now, faculty, and even Catholic leaders, uh, as we kind of navigate through this, what what counsel? What what would you say to them
3: today? Wow, um, I think several things, and the first one is um, it's easy to be discouraged by what you can't do. Don't let what you can't do interfere with what you can do, because your ministry and your work in parish life and school life actually matters now more than it ever did before for all the reasons that we that we've just talked about where the church is where the culture is um, the fallout of, excuse me the fallout of the pandemic the fallout of the election the fallout of all these different kinds of things the, the, the friendship may take a different shape and form and relationships may take a different shape and form and they may not be as robust as you would like but they matter now more than ever before people are hungrier now than they've ever been before and that's what we that's what we're experiencing in dynamic catholic we're building a whole new content team because the, the demand, the hunger for spiritual nourishment uh, and sustenance is so deep. And so your work in the, in those face-to-face relationships, whether it's teaching physics, teaching third grade, or working with the, with the, the life team group at your parish matters now more than ever before. Don't be discouraged, be as creative as you can possibly be. Um, Let the answer be yes until it has to be no. Don't do the typical thing that we're usually doing and say the answer is no until somebody can prove to me that it needs to be yes. Let the answer to an idea be yes until it's absolutely proven that the answer needs to be no. Because now is the time for um, taking off any of the the guardrails around our thinking for a while and trying to figure out what are some ways that we can encourage, foster relationships, cultivate um, friendships and and nurture the faith in, in our students and in the people in our parish.
2: Alan, students are coming to our schools with differing levels of spiritual maturity, devotion, and enthusiasm. Um, you saw that at the Mount Pisgah School, uh, and that was a school that uh, has a, had a philosophy of, of reaching these students where they were at and, and moving them along their journey um uh, so too many of our catholic schools what do you see as as key ingredients to uh, helping students along that uh, that journey and are there any differences in the catholic school milieu than in the protestant milieu based on your experience
3: yeah that's kyle you are the master of asking a question it has got three big questions at all to <laughs> 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 this is great um Yeah, I think, and this is something that Kyle, you and I have talked about in in anticipation of this conversation today, is I think the the most important thing in my mind is simply to be intentional. I think oftentimes we we put intentionality into how are we going to teach kids math over the 12 years that we're we're with them, and we put intentionality into how are we going to make sure they get physical education, but we don't really have an intentional strategy for how are we going to uh, expose them to the faith, invite them to a life of faith, invite them to say yes to Jesus and to his church. Uh, do we have a strategy for that? What does that look like? And what I appreciate about what you're doing is the fact that you're trying to bring people together who may not even have the answers, but they're at least asking the question to learn from each other and say, hey, this 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 school's doing this really well. That that would fit well into what we're doing. Now, this school, let's get together and learn from each other and say, okay, how can and, and our strategies may may vary widely, but let's let's have a strategy. Um, and let's have an intentional plan for how we're going to do that. Let's tweak it. Let's learn. Okay, we thought this would be a really helpful thing. Turns out it wasn't. Um, let's let's do this. Let's don't do that and, and keep cultivating that because really, um, in my mind, again, you guys can push back on me because I know some people will dis- would disagree. That's the reason for Catholic education. Um, if, if, it's, if it's the purely minimalist approach of we want them to get the best academic education, in a lot of places, they can get that in other schools as well, and usually cheaper, uh, and sometimes for free. Um, But what we're doing is we're educating the whole kid, because God made a whole person. (laughs) And and we've seen what happens in a society, we're seeing families all around us right now, where there's, there's not that moral compass, where there's not that spiritual framework, where there's not that understanding of what God hopes for your child, and what God hopes for your family, and what God hopes for your marriage. And we just become a bunch of achievers who think it's all about information. So I guess my first thing would be, to have a strategy, uh, and, it's hard to get, and it's hard to get one um, that, that, that works. You, you have to experiment and, and fail at some stuff. Uh, and secondly, I, I think there's a, there is a big difference, um, Kyle, in, in the, the Protestant versus Catholic education thing is because of where we started the conversation earlier. Because Protestantism in general has spent so little time on K-12, almost every school is reinventing the wheel, um, trying to kind of figure it out as they go. Catholic education has morphed. I mean, in the beginning, because of the Blaine Amendment and all those kinds of things, you know, we, we've had uh, different reasons for Catholic education, but there, there is at least a physical relationship. If nothing else, there's at least a physical relationship in most settings with a parish. Uh, and that, that gives, as opposed, as opposed to, in most Protestant settings, it, it's not even related to a parish, it's a standalone where maybe different groups get together. And so to find ways for those to, to uh, cross-pollinate each other, so that the, the faith life of the parish feeds into the school and the vitality and the curiosity and the energy of the school feeds into the parish. And let those strengths complement each other um, in forming that strategy. I mean, you, you've got, in most parishes, you've got an enormous um, group of people who look like me or older. Uh, it's hard to believe anybody could actually be older than me at this point, but they, they do exist. Who, who, who are there and, and leverage them. Let them them do things in the school so that it gives them life, gives them a mission, and and the kids benefit from that. In in the same way, let the kids infuse the life of the parish um, and and let that energy bubble out. So I guess my my main point would be just to have – I'm not even going to tell you what the strategy should be. Have one. Craft Mm -hmm. it, learn from other people, tweak it, experiment, and and let it iterate, and pay attention to it. I mean, to me, that was the school board's – primary responsibility was to okay we, we trust that the, that the youngins are getting educated that they're learning calculus and that kind of stuff um we got some measure on that tell us how are we preserving the mission uh, our, our job according to the national association of independent schools preserve safeguard the mission of the school all right so the mission of the school is the whole person catholic faith how are we doing that how are we going to get at that how are we going to be better at that next year we're not going for perfection how are we going to be better next year than we were this year what are we going to do how we're we going to get to a strategy and who's going to own it because if everybody owns it, nobody owns it.
1: That's really good stuff. And uh, I think uh, again, it, it kind of puts us back into the drawing board, doesn't it? That we've just got to kind of reevaluate everything. And I love the word intentionality that we have to, to have intentionality in terms of, of moving this thing forward. Um, Alan, what, what does the future look like in terms of what you and, Matthew and others are doing a Dynamic Catholic to kind of keep moving this thing forward in terms of mission?
3: Yeah, I think one of the things that makes um, Dynamic Catholic unique more than anything else is that we're a grassroots movement. Uh, We're not a top-down movement. Uh, We're not trying to work through the hierarchy to get down to the parishes and get down to schools. We, we, We try to go out into the highways and the byways, as Jesus would say in the Gospel of Luke, Uh, and and go out and and try to evangelize meeting people where they are through events, through resources, through books, and now through an enormous amount of online content um, that's going to be occurring in even greater numbers in the next year. To begin having those aha moments, those uh, what we would call trigger moments that kind of spark somebody's faith forward and doing that across hundreds of thousands of lives across, across the country and mobilizing those people to be evangelists, if you will, in their own circle, whether it's in their school or in their family or in their neighborhood or in their parish, um, so kind of coming from the from the bottom up with with regular people who are mechanics and teachers and nurses and stay-at-home moms, um, and really w- with the conviction that that's where the real renewal tends to come from the bottom up. Um, very rarely do, do hierarchies reform themselves or renew themselves. It usually comes from a, a new injection of life, and so that's what Matthew and I and our and our team of uh, staff members and ambassadors is, is committed to is just transforming lives one person at a time and one parish at a time.
2: Ellen, are you doing any writing right now? Uh, any, any project yourself? Uh,
3: yeah, I have, I have morphed over the last couple of years, Kyle, From I, I was writing, um, a, a book a year. And so having have a book on forgiveness and a book on, uh, the fruit of the spirit and that kind of thing. But over the last couple of years, I've started to, uh, the goal is that I'll produce one Bible study a year for for parishes and for schools. Um, so I have one on the Gospel of John called "The Turning Point." Um, came out year before last because of this year we didn't put one out. We had some other things going on. Uh, this next year will be one on on Genesis. Next year will be one on Philippians. That they're designed to be short term, not twenty five, thirty five weeks, but five, six, eight weeks so that the average person will say, yeah, I can, I can do that. That's got a beginning and an end. I'm not committed for the rest of my life or for the whole year. And also not designed again, this is we were talking about Catholic education, not designed to be so informational here. Let me tell you the history of the text and all that kind of stuff. And here's what all the Latin words and the Greek words mean, but it, it, here's, here's what, here's what God, God. And, 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 how, how can that connect in your life? How can you, how can you live out what St. Paul is saying here about joy as he writes from a Roman prison In in the letter to the Philippians. How how can you take that same kind of joy? How can that be ignited in your life? So, tending to be very experiential, very practical, um, and giving those to parishes and and just, you know, have schools that are using those. We have families that are using those. So, really, um, after however long it's been since I
2: did the PhD in New Testament, I'm actually getting around to using it. (laughs) (laughs) Those resources, Alan, can be found on Dynamic Catholic.
3: Yep, dynamiccatholic.com. All of that is there at dynamiccatholic.com. And um, th- as you were mentioning before, Kyle, uh, the, one of the things that this is one, the, the Bible study is one area that we haven't migrated over where everything is, is available for free on online with, with the video. So uh, the workbooks and stuff are available, but the, the video for the, the the Gospel John one is not, but the, the coming ones, Genesis and Philippians, et cetera, will, will, will all be there. Great.
1: Well, Ellen, knowing that uh, most of the people that are, are uh, listening to this podcast are uh, Catholic school leaders and teachers, as we come to the end of, the, of our interview, is there one final thing that you want to leave us with in terms of uh, our mission of continuing uh, the work of Catholic education?
3: Well, Father Randy, at the beginning, you said that we might want to talk about my greatest professional setback. And I think that's a good thing to leave everybody with Okay. because since you, since you mentioned that, um, i got to thinking, okay, if I had to say what's the biggest mistake that I ever made, and there's been a bunch, um, it it would be, I made two or three really bad hiring decisions. Um, and I think that's, and, and when you make a bad hiring decision, um, and, and I suspect almost anybody who's running a school has made a few of those as well. Um, They can be really painful and they can be very damaging. Um, And I think the one thing I would leave you with, particularly for the people who I understand in general, be that uh, viewing this conversation is build your team carefully, build your team well, because you're only one person. And if you're building out an entire school of each one of those persons from the janitor, Uh, to the people preparing lunch to the PE teacher to the calculus teacher to the fourth grade teacher every one of them is an influencer in the lives not only of the kids that they have in their classroom but of those kids families and of communicating the culture that you're trying to create that can be an incubator for faith life truth beauty goodness and all those things so don't shortchange your hiring process um be patient with your hiring process, trust that God will provide a person. And the times almost not every time, but almost every time that I made a really painful, I mean, I made some small hiring decisions that were bad ones, but I made three or four that were really, really not turned out to be not good. And almost every time it was because I rushed, I got impatient. I got to have somebody to do this. Okay. This person, it's a wing and a prayer. I hope they can do it. If you're hoping they can do it, you're not convinced they can do it. Probably need to take a pass. Um, and muddle through and keep praying for God to provide a person that that would be my that would be my one piece of parting wisdom because <laughs> those things are painful and I see you guys nodding your faces you know too <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: well Alan thank you so much this has been just a rich rich uh conversation with you today Kyle anything you want to want to add on here before we close things up
2: just uh, my my own gratitude and thanks, Alan, for for your time uh, with us on Follow to Lead and and your support of Duke and Altam uh, Schools Collaborative and and the wisdom and guidance you've provided uh, me personally. I really appreciate it.
3: We're all in this together. This is a team sport now more than ever before. So, let's let's go get them.
2: Yeah. Amen.
1: Amen. Well, thank you again, Alan, for being with us. And also, I want to thank our uh, production team, our production interns, uh, John Sampson and Alex Shire along with our production supervisor, Mr. Jack Allspot, for producing this podcast. And may Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.
0: Amen. We'd like to thank you for joining us on this episode of Follow to Lead, a production of the Duke and Altum Schools Collaborative. To learn more about finding your own path in your journey of faith or for more information on what we discussed in today's episode, you are invited to follow us on social media and visit us on the web at diaschools.org. To provide a one-time donation or monthly pledge, please visit our website. Your gift will aid us in providing up-to-date information, additional resources, and other support on how to take Catholic education to a higher level. We look forward to helping you follow God's call to lead others to God right here on Follow to Lead.